investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 30 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is Friday, September 6th, 2019. First podcast of September. I hope everyone had a great summer. Got a number of important topics to talk about on this week's podcast. Specifically, we're going to chat about uh, economic conditions in Canada. Put out some pretty good economic growth figures along with jobs numbers this week. We're going to chat what's behind the numbers there and why the Canadian dollar is rallying this week. Some real Brexit drama. It reached comedic levels as PM Boris Johnson faced defeat in Parliament. Is Brexit ever going to happen? Investors balk at WeWork's initial public offering as it's forced to slash its valuation by over 50%. Will they end up scrapping the whole thing altogether? And lastly, we're going to chat about uh, the fact that NBA, the National Basketball Association, is considering creating an investment fund to hold stakes in professional basketball teams. Should you become an owner? And we're just going to talk also about professional sports team ownership in general and how you can access that as an everyday investor important week this week in Canadian economic figures. We basically had three major economic data points coming out this week. That's quarterly GDP growth. We had a big Bank of Canada decision on interest rates and lastly a jobs report today. So we're going to start with the Q2 economic growth figures. I mean it really smashed expectations. Huge number at 3.7% annualized GDP growth which is the largest since 2017. Significantly ahead of the Bank of Canada is 2.3% forecast. Some contributing factors behind that very strong GDP numbers, mostly energy production, which was up 5.7% in addition to housing activity. Now, the major market implication of the strong GDP print is it's causing economists and, and analysts to push back their rate cut predictions for the Bank of Canada. Uh, as we know, central banks uh, throughout the globe uh, have been cutting rates. You saw the uh, U.S. Uh, Fed recently cut rates, and they're expected to do so again. And, uh, you know, many other central banks globally have been engaged in a rate-cutting cycle, but not yet for the Bank of Canada. This week, they announced that they were he- keeping rates steady at 1.75%, which was really in line with expectations. Uh, the market wasn't really forecasting a rate cut this time. However, the Bank of Canada made several references to the worsening effects of trade tensions on the world economy. And this is really just suggesting that the Bank of Canada is prepared to cut rates if necessary. However, they're not really there yet, which is really makes them stand out uh, really on their own uh, with respect to uh, pretty much every other central bank in the world who is pursuing, now pursuing an easing cycle. So Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Paulos and his advisors, they're weighing the relatively positive domestic economic figures. One is this Q2 GDP growth number. Not just that, but also very stable inflation right around their 2% target. They're, they're contrasting this with rising global threats to the world economy, including Brexit, which is one thing, the US-China trade war, which is really looming and causing you know, a slowdown in economic activity globally. 
Quote from the BOC, they're indicating that Canada's economy is operating close to potential and inflation is on target. So they believe everything is smooth sailing. However, you know, they are aware of these global risks out there. Like we said, uh, a number of things, potential threats on the horizon, such as the impact of these trade wars and the slowdown in global growth, whether it's uh, various PMI figures that we've seen, a lot of weakness uh, out of Europe, specifically Germany, which is really driving the European economy. Nonetheless, we go back to market expectations. The BOC meets again next month on a rate cut decision and the market's pricing in basically a 50% chance that the Bank of Canada is going to cut rates. However, that was before um, the jobs numbers came out, which really knocked it out of the park. They announced 81,000 uh, jobs created last month, which in my opinion is pretty hard to believe. As we discussed, whenever these Canadian jobs numbers come out, you got to take them with uh, a grain of salt to be pretty skeptical about them. They're all over the place. I mean, in July, we had 24,000 jobs lost. So, you know, I never really put a lot of stock into Canadian jobs figures. I like to look at averages and, and year to date, we're averaging 38,000 jobs per month, month, which is pretty strong. I mean, I like comparing it to the US figures. You can 10X that US jobs came out this morning as well at I believe 130,000, a bit below consensus. But nonetheless, uh, Canada's economy seems to be hitting on all cylinders. What do you think of these strong economic job numbers and uh, the outlook for rates in the currency? Yeah, so s starting with the jobs numbers is, uh, I would like to point out that a lot of the increases were in part-time jobs. So, you know, that is different than full-time uh, full employment in terms of just the overall sustaining impact of those jobs. But the other aspect that I would like to point out, you had mentioned that you like to look at the averages and the trends. Another thing that I like to look at is the wage growth, especially when it relates to inflation. Uh, it's something I've pointed out before, but yet again, we do have wage growth outpacing inflation where it's at about 3.8%. And really that's just the purchasing power increasing for everyday Canadians, which is important to look at. Just touching quickly on the GDP numbers is like you had mentioned, it is interesting to see such a difference between the actual and the estimated typically the economists aren't that far off with something like gdp so that is interesting to note um, as well as with the gdp numbers that the increase in energy exports which was a major driver of this just points out how sensitive we are and this was largely driven by higher commodity prices just um, does does show how sensitive canada's economy is to um, commodities and then lastly on the on the boc one interesting point of analysis that I that I came across with regards to why the BOC didn't cut rates uh, could be because of the high levels of household debt in Canada, with the view being that an, a, a cut would incentivize more borrowing. And just to put that into perspective, uh, Canadians have about 2.16 trillion in debt which as a percentage of GDP is actually just over 100%, which is the highest of G7 countries. And to put that into further perspective, the US, which is traditionally viewed as a country that takes on a lot of debt at the consumer level and the corporate level, is at about 76% of GDP, which is you know something to really consider 
in Canada is our really high debt levels. Right. And one reason that the BOC is kind of not rushing to cut rates is, as you indicated, debt levels, which is largely correlated with housing. Housing prices in Canada have gone up a lot, specifically in Vancouver and Toronto, the two biggest cities. And with that, they view uh, or they're concerned that many consumers are potentially over leveraged and they don't want to cause that to get even more extreme by making it you know, easier to support a larger and larger debt level with lower rates. But nonetheless, you know, they can only do so much. What we're starting to see is really just a global easing cycle from central banks and Canada can't be unique forever. You got to take into account that perhaps uh, this recent economic data is somewhat of a statistical anomaly. We'll monitor it to see you know, how long can they keep putting up these strong uh, economic figures, whether it's GDP, whether it's jobs. Um, and, and with respect to that, that will affect the market's perception on the probability of rate cuts, which will ultimately affect the currency. But nonetheless, these economic figures are uh, better than expected. And therefore, you see the Canadian dollar rallying um, after this unexpected jump. More hilarity ensued this week with additional Brexit drama. What happened was a British PM, Boris Johnson, he faced a humiliating week uh, on a number of fronts as MPs backed legislation that would block his hard Brexit plan. As we know, um, Boris Johnson really came into power promising voters to execute Brexit on October 31st, even if there was no plan to go along with it. In addition, uh, MPs stopped his attempt to call an election to push forward his exit from the e or Britain's exit from the EU. Specifically, Tory rebel MPs joined forces with the opposition to approve a Brexit delay bill. What this did effectively, it aimed at blocking a no deal exit uh, at the October 31st deadline. In addition, his motion to secure an election to push forward Brexit also faced a humility, humiliating defeat. So Johnson, he claimed that the maneuver would ultimately hold Britain in a Brexit limbo for many years to come, which, I mean, you look at Brexit, it has been happening uh, for three years since the referendum happened and how much progress have they made? Effectively none, they've just been spinning their tires month in, month out for three years already and have accomplished exactly nothing. So to summarize PM jo Boris Johnson's week, well, he faced his first votes in parliament and lost them. Second, he lost his minority government's governing majority. Third, he sacked 21 of his own MPs, including his party's longest serving member, who also happened to be Winston Churchill's grandson. Fourth, provoked his own brother into resigning from cabinet, citing a conflict between family loyalty and national interest. And lastly, he lost control of the House of Commons while remaining so offside the chamber's confidence that will not yet allow him to resolve the matter by calling an election. So to summarize, I wanted to comment on some market action. The, the British pound, the GBP, bounced back 1.4% on the day. As you know, Brexit is horrible for Britain's currency. And so it had a little bounce, uh, more of a dead cat bounce. It has been tanking along with Brexit here. And the betting markets in, in the UK, they have uh, betting markets where you can bet on a whole host of things and many Brexit outcomes you can bet on. One is the odds of a hard Brexit come the October 31st deadline. Well, the odds of this plummeted from 50% to now 17%. So they're really pricing in a small chance of a hard Brexit on October 31st. The most likely outcome 
is a 45% chance on a Brexit extension, so we can all look forward to more Brexit nonsense post the October 31st deadline, which I believe is now the third deadline. What are your thoughts on this hilarity that's happening in UK politics? Yeah, hilarity is the correct way to describe it. But I also just wanted to go back to his removal of the 2021 Conservative MPs. Um, And this was because they had voted against his government in another Brexit vote. But the, the kind of funny part about this is that as soon as he had let these people go and removed them, he was facing backlash from his own party where he immediately then behind the scenes from from sources said that he was looking for ways to bring them back as it was a show of a weakening government. And so really, it just seems like everything is going in all sorts of directions. It's honestly kind of hard to follow along with all the twists and turns that are going on here if you focus on the daily minutia. But really, all that's happening is uh, coming back to the center of that no one at that initial Brexit vote, it really wasn't decisive that everybody wanted to leave Brexit or to do a Brexit. And it really just comes back to that where I believe the majority of the populace really doesn't want this. Or they want to not be part of the EU, but keep all the benefits. So now they're realizing, hey, if we exit the EU, there's all this economic damage. There's tons of jobs are going to be lost. Incomes are going to decline. Our way of life is going to decrease in in value. So especially you know, for per- traveling. Yeah, like. and perhaps they are having second thoughts. It certainly isn't turning out how Brexit was initially pitched to them, and people are really starting to catch on. But as for the effective execution of this. It still remains to be unseen three years into the Brexit process, and there really is no more clarity than there was on day one. Interesting news in the IPO space. We're going to comment a bit on WeWorks anticipated or now so not so anticipated initial public offering. What's happening here is that investors have really balked at WeWork's IPO specifically in addition to all of the corporate governance matters that we talked about on last week's podcast. A big issue here is on valuation. So WeWork's initial public offering remains a tough sell with investors and it's considering slashing its valuation by over 50% from recent $47 billion, which is where SoftBank's Vision Fund invested in uh, a private round of WeWork recently. They're considering slashing this value to $20 billion in, in order to overcome investor skepticism and make this IPO successful. So getting into SoftBank, now SoftBank owns about 29% of WeWork and SoftBank has plowed over $10 billion into WeWork already, so $10.65 billion into it. Now, what we like to do is look at uh, comparables uh, just to see how things shake out from the valuation, uh, on a valuation perspective. So if we look at publicly traded IWG, which owns comparable co-working company Regis, and you can see Regis facilities around any major city and they're very, very similar to WeWork. Now Regis, their parent IWG is valued at only 12 billion. However, Regis has 3,000 locations, WeWork has 528. IWG has 3.1 billion in revenue versus WeWork's 1.8 billion. So nearly twice as much revenue and WeWork is trying to have uh, a valuation that's nearly 
twice as high as IWG or 4X on uh, EV per revenue basis. But in my opinion, if we look at these numbers and compare it to IWG's Regis, then I believe you know a more rational and fitting valuation for WeWork would be roughly around 8 billion. So I believe that this 20 billion down from 47 billion is still far too high and they still need to cut it by over 50% to be successful such that investors will actually buy the IPO. But you take that and frame it with respect to SoftBank's 10.65 billion valuation for, or 10.65 billion investment for a 29% stake into WeWork. And now if we say that 100% of WeWork is now only worth 8 billion, what that indicates is that uh, WeWork's a massive incinerator of capital. It's actually worth significantly less than all the money invested into it. Not just that, but SoftBank is really, really underwater on their investment here, which has tremendous implications in my mind because SoftBank is out trying to raise a second vision fund, which they want to be north of $100 billion. So they want to have high performance for their first vision fund. And WeWork is really you know, a trophy investment of their first vision fund, and they're out pitching you know, this great performance off the back of a WeWork valued at $47 billion. Well, how is that WeWork uh, performance going to look when it's marked at $8 billion? So in my opinion, you know, is this IPO going to happen or is SoftBank going to stop it just so they don't have to remark or mark to market their book to capture this massive valuation decline at WeWork? But, you know, it's, it's an ongoing situation. What are your thoughts on this whole IPO disaster at WeWork? Yeah, and with regards to SoftBank is not only are they heavily in SoftBank, their vision fund number one, not only are they highly invested in WeWork already, but also their other main investment, Uber, they are reportedly down $600 million, uh, at current prices in that investment. So they really need WeWork to work out. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry about the phrasing there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of as well, one thing that we had mentioned in the initial WeWork episode was that they actually really aren't that sensitive to the, their valuation because what they really need is a $6 billion uh, credit facility from their lenders, which is contingent on raising th- at least $3 billion. Right. So oh, what, the, the $6 billion. Yes. So what they really need is in order to get $9 billion potentially because they are you know, losing a lot of cash. Uh, through their operations is that it's not exactly the valuation that they're sensitive to. They will do their IPO or a fundraise at whatever valuation as long as they can raise that $3 billion. So puts an interesting dynamic between WeWork and SoftBank where SoftBank is very sensitive to the valuation, WeWork not so much. Um, But the other interesting aspect, one other thing that we had brought up in the previous episode was Newman's deal with the We trademark where he was given $5.9 million. And that actually wasn't in cash, that was actually in shares of the company. But regardless of that, likely because of investor backlash over their governance, he did give those shares back, which really wasn't announced by the company. It was just in their refiling of their S1, they just left that out. Uh, The other interesting aspect that I thought I would highlight is that Newman was actually speaking at a, during an analyst roadshow here this week, 
And he kind of bragged about their, the support that WeWork has from Wells Fargo, which is their lead lender in the credit facility. And because of this, it, his explanation was that Wells Fargo is really persuaded by the company's positive unit economics. However, you know, they really don't provide the sort of granular location detail in their prospectus for public investors. So you just kind of have to take it on faith. And if they did have positive unit economics, you would think mm -hmm. that they would highlight that in the prospectus as that's a main concern. As But what I really think is that the creditors are mainly focused on the $3 billion equity buffer mm -hmm. less than the unit economics. Right. So that it's, it's just a really interesting situation. I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out. Right. And I think investors really need to give uh, significant consideration uh, to the type of investment this is. And I consider WeWork uh, the type of business that is highly sensitive to capital markets. They're burning a ton of cash and they continually have to access uh, capital markets. Thus far, they've done it on the private side, but now they're looking to come public. And so there's a lot more scrutiny on them. There's short sellers on them and they're trying to get debt more debt and so they're levering up and if the capital markets ever loses faith in the story it's really pretty much impossible to recover if your stock's tanking because now it's on public display everyone knows and lenders gonna look at your stock price there's they're seeing it crash no one's gonna want to lend you money so it that really goes to the concept of uh, reflexivity uh, which is a theory by you know famed investor George Soros and reflexivity can sum it up pretty much um, uh, you know, historically or, or fundamentally, uh, typically how uh, stock prices work is that fundamentals affect the stock price. But what reflexivity indicates is it's not just fundamentals affecting price, but price affecting fundamentals. And this is a very, very important concept for WeWork and other highly sensitive you know, capital markets focused companies that require continued uh, injections of capital at higher and higher valuations is that if market ever loses faith, then, you know, the stock price tanking and the loss of access to capital can affect the fundamentals of the business tremendously. And we've seen time and time again when that happens and they lose that access many companies end up going to zero, end up going bankrupt because they can't fund those losses. And just to build on that thought is that WeWork has really been focusing on their enterprise customers. So bringing in large corporations and managing their office space for them. IBM is a good example of that. And what could result if they are a public company, if those, if those uh, potential folks that are taking, having uh, their property managed by WeWork see the share price go down, that could give them less confidence in having WeWork manage their property and have another area of negative feedback loop there. Right, right. And so this share price is effectively a public scorecard, which tells a lot about the company and it can really affect the faith, not just of uh, investors and employees, but also lenders and also, you know, potential business partners. So that's something really to keep in mind. You're going to have a lot of attention from short sellers on this stock. I happen to be 
or I happen to think that it might be a very good short if and when it does become public. But I think just given all the issues, all the drama, and the lack of public market support at pretty much any valuation, looks like it's still going to be a tough sell at the $20 billion. I think there's actually now a good chance that this IPO could get pulled and they won't be going public anytime soon, but we shall see. So you want to be a sports team owner. Well, there may just be another way to accomplish that dream if it is in fact your dream because the NBA is considering creating an investment fund to hold stakes in some of their pro basketball teams. Basically what they're trying to do is capitalize on the soaring value of their franchises in addition to providing liquidity to some of their owners. Um, a quote from the NBA here, they indicated that this vehicle would provide additional liquidity for the sale of team ownership interests, including by providing access to a new pool of long-term investors that do not currently have access to team ownership opportunities. Now, sports team ownership has traditionally, at least in the last 10 years, been you know the, the playground of billionaires. We've seen sports team values skyrocket into the billion of dollar ranges, some recent transactions. Just in the news uh, last month, Brooklyn Nets just sold to the co-founder of Alibaba. Um, I believe Mikhail Prokhorov sold his 50% stake and he's a Russian oligarch. That team sold at a valuation of $2.3 billion, which was record. Uh, in football, NFL team Carolina Panthers sold to hedge fund legend David Tepper for $2.3 billion. That was, it, I believe, within the last year. Um, uh, some other data points, actually, regular everyday investors can own a stake in the Atlanta Braves. I actually own this because it it is a publicly traded stock. Uh, it's owned by Liberty, but Liberty took it public a number of years ago. I bought the stock. I believe I owned 0.0001% of the Atlanta Braves. A minority shareholder. <laughs> I could bra brag to uh, friends and family that I was a professional sports team owner, so I checked that box off the old bucket list. So the Atlanta Braves, you can go into the market and buy their stock at only 28 bucks a share. This values the Atlanta Braves at $1.8 billion. There's a couple of other ways to find ownership in the public markets of some of your favorite sports franchises. One, if you're a hockey fan or basketball fan, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, they're a Canadian company owned by BCE and Rogers, both of which are publicly traded in Toronto. Now, Maple Leaf Sports, they own both the Toronto Raptors and Toronto Maple Leaf. So that's another way investors can get access to it. And why would investors want to own a professional sports franchise? Well, number one, there's bragging rights. Uh, people like, uh, you know, it's very soothing to the ego to be able to say that you own a professional sports the other thing is, you know, the, historically they have provided very good returns, and this is not from a cash flow perspective. Typically, investors are unable to really extract any sort of dividends. They don't really produce any free cash flow, but we have seen historically that um, the returns have gone up over time. If we look at the NBA and you know, with the topic that the NBA is considering creating a fund, they have uh, every single team is worth well over a billion dollars. You have at the top the New York Knicks that have recently valued at four billion. 
This is, I believe, according to Forbes, this is their latest ranking. You had the Toronto Raptors, which is part of publicly traded BC, Ian Rogers, valued at $1.7 billion. However, after winning the recent championship, that valuation is sure to go up. And at the very bottom, the lowest valuation is the Memphis Grizzlies, but this will still cost an investor $1.2 billion, but certainly a really interesting potential opportunity for investors if the NBA does in fact create this fund for smaller investors to get a piece of NBA team ownership. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, so first, I just wanted to point out the growth in team valuations over the about the last 20 years is it act, the average team valuation in the NFL has actually increased about 11% uh, year over year um, over the last 20 years. Um, which is which is quite interesting, and in that as you mentioned, there really isn't much for income distributions paid out, but that doesn't include any of any of those distributions if there was any. Um, but what's interesting in that is that the lowest value of a team is actually in terms of evaluation on an EV to EBITDA and estimated EBITDA uh, basis is 13 times, which is a fairly high EBD EBITDA ratio. Um, moving over to the NBA, they've actually been increasing at 12.5% compounded annually over the last uh, 20-ish years. And so what is the reason for some of this increase? Number one is TV deals. So say in the NFL, each year, this year, it's estimated that every team will receive $255 million. And you can compare that to $116 million in 2010 and $83 million in the year 2000. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't account for all of the growth in team valuations. The other aspects are merchandising and licensing deals, which have become very popular in both the NFL and NBA as well as rising ticket prices. But rising ticket prices really make up kind of a small amount of that team value when you look at that. And the other aspect being uh, stadium deals is municipalities have been willing over the last number 20 years to give uh, sports franchises really sweetheart deals. And then the last thing I did want to point out um, with regards to differences between the NFL and NBA is just restrictions in the ownership policies. So in the NFL, the primary shareholder, the main owner, has to own 30% of the equity. Now in the NBA, that's only 15%. So if you're looking at these team values, and keep in mind that in the NFL, you're only allowed to put on $350 million worth of debt. Mm -hmm. So really in terms of the overall enterprise value, not a lot of debt in this capital structure. Well, that principal shareholder will have to come up with a lot of money based on a $1.9 billion average team value. You can do the math where you have to come up with a significant amount of money in the $600 million range. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that's quite interesting as well. It was an interesting thing that the NFL did in the last year was they eliminated the cross ownership restriction, which now allows them to own a different professional sports team in cities that have an NFL team. And now why that was in place before was that it was viewed that an NFL owner having an ownership 
in another professional sports team in another city was actually competing with the NFL. But in reality, it really doesn't make sense that an NFL team would be competing for customers' dollars with an NHL team. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the sports leagues, they don't really overlap and it just doesn't really make logical sense. And why they did this, this will allow, for example, Stan Kreinke, uh, the owner of the LA Rams, well, he had actually circumvented this rule and transferred his ownership of the Colorado Avalanche in the NHL and the Denver Nuggets uh, in the NBA over to his family members in a trust just to get around this rule. So it really didn't actually affect any owners in mm. buying the teams that they wanted. Um, what it did was they just found ways to circumvent the, the rules. And really all this is about, any of these changes are all about creating more liquidity for when uh, owners do want to sell. As the other thing that I would like to point out is that sales of LP stakes is that all the headlines are that are at big premiums to a Forbes valuation are for majority stakes. What go for typically a discounted rate, typically 10 to 25% are the limited partners or minority stakes, which are for significantly less. You really don't have much of a say of how the organization is run. The best description I've seen is it's the people who pay the most for the best seats. Right, you get to talk with the team and have some control over what's happening. Meanwhile, minority shareholders might get some free tickets, but certainly not uh, floor seats. But I just wanted to really frame this investment opportunity for investors. You mentioned the 12% annual returns. And if you think, you know, what does that equate to? Well, it equates to roughly your money doubling every six years. 12% annualized has outperformed the markets, sort of 8 to 10% annual returns. So you are seeing or you have seen better returns than the stock market from professional sports team ownership. So investors, you know, could be pretty keen on this potential opportunity. But nonetheless, it is a regular or relatively speculative asset. Certainly, you'd consider it a trophy asset that comes with a lot of bragging rights. And you don't really get to brag too much about the stocks you own. But you could certainly brag about the ownership interests you have in a professional sports franchise. Not to mention, I see a couple of really interesting growth opportunities for uh, professional sports team franchises specifically. Number one would be uh, legalized gambling in the US. If that does come to fruition, you can see big upside in revenue opportunities and their full valuations of professional sports teams. The other thing is media rights with a lot of uh, technology and inter internet giants coming into the mix, whether it be Facebook, uh, Amazon, Twitter, Apple, they're all trying to really establish a solid foothold on media and they're starting to see them bid on certain sports rights. So as the rights to these events go up, the sports team valuations and revenues go up as well, pre presenting further upside for investors here. So I think this is a interesting opportunities for investors to go long as it could be an attractive uh, investment opportunity. So keep your eyes on this potential NBA team ownership opportunity. And that's it, folks, for episode 30 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, you can check out more episodes on absolutereturnpodcast.com. Leave us a rating if you're up for it, and we will chat with you next week. Hope you have a good one. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com.
The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.